Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to and so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. Hey, I don't know if you've been listening to our political show, The Backbench, with Matea Roach, but they've been doing some fascinating work this season. They have interviewed former Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole. They have been having conversations on the failures of the left in Canada. They've been talking about youth engagement in politics, and they have been doing shows all across the country. Today, you're going to hear a show that they taped in the Yukon. Check it out. Hey, it's Matea Roach, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about every part of this gigantic country. Today on the show, we're bringing you our live event that we recorded at the Yukon Theatre in Whitehorse on October 7th. I got to speak with three remarkable community leaders. They guided me through the local and territorial political landscape and unpacked the importance of Indigenous sovereignty in the North. We don't do a great job of creating safe spaces for people to have tough conversations. And I think in the Yukon, we've done about as much as we can on the low-hanging fruit of reconciliation. Uh, and now we're getting to the tough stuff. Hunting rights, fishing rights, land, housing. And we're not going to be able to do that in a good way and make progress unless we make space for difficult conversations and, um, and have enough empathy for each other. We have a lot to learn about politics in the Yukon, from the First Nations journey to self-governance to the trials and tribulations of collaborating with the colonial political structure. Although having conversations about these topics can feel uncomfortable for a lot of people, what I learned from speaking with folks in the Yukon is that these conversations actually are absolutely necessary in tackling reconciliation. This is a discussion you won't want to miss. Let's get into it. Uh, hi, White Horse. Thank you all so much for coming. <laughs> So we're gathered here today on the traditional territories of the Ta'an Kwachan Council and the Kwanlin Dun First Nation. These nations have been on this land since time immemorial, and the two nations have had and continue to have a spiritual, cultural, and economic connection to the land and resources of this area. Talking about land and governance is going to be a big focus of this afternoon, and we're going to be talking about that to do with the city of Whitehorse, but also the whole Yukon Territory. 
So we want to talk about the history of how nations have fought for their sovereignty in this place. And in order to do this, because no one needs to hear my thoughts on this, I am not the expert. We have three powerhouses who are going to share their knowledge with us. So sitting next to me, we have Michelle Friesen. Michelle is the first Indigenous woman to have been elected to the City Council for the City of Whitehorse. Her family's First Nation is the Ta'an Kwachan Council, which is one of the nations on the traditional territories where Whitehorse is located. And Michelle is also a busy mom. So she really, really, can, women can have it all. In the middle, we have Tosh Southwick of the, yeah. of the Wolf Moiety and citizen of Kluani First Nation. Tosh has worked with Yukon First Nations for most of her career in lots of different capacities. She's worked in governance, education, human resources, and health for various First Nation governments and organizations. And then over on the end, we have Carissa Waugh also, yes. Also known by her Northern Tushone name, Eke Ewe. She is from the Kwanlin Dun First Nation belonging to the Crow Clan. Carissa is the project coordinator with the Northern Council for Global Cooperation while they work on the Unleash project. And she, <laughs> I love that the audience is so enthusiastic. Like, this is so good. Carissa also runs her at-home business called Eke Ewa Art, where she sells her beadwork all across Canada, using her art to bring awareness to Indigenous issues, including missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people, every child matters, reconciliation, and climate change. I want to first ask Michelle, Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into politics. Yeah, this is um, a story that I actually really love telling. <laughs> I am somebody who never really saw myself in politics. And if you had asked me three, four, five years ago if I thought I would be a city councillor or had run in an election, I would have said uh, no. Um, <laughs> When you think of a politician, it's really this vision that fits in this cookie cutter box of having a certain type of background or a certain type of education or, you know, wearing a suit or <laughs> all of those things. And so thankfully, I had some really amazing people in the community who saw some things that I was doing just because I loved doing them and they were easy and they brought me joy and I really wanted to lift community up. And, you know, they came to me and said, those are leadership qualities and those are things that I want on my team and I want those things to be reflected in politics. And so they asked me to run in an election and so that was my first time ever stepping foot in the political realm. And I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with connecting with the community and learning from my neighbors. And through that experience, representation became really important to me. And so that's really what drives me to keep moving forward and to keep putting my name forward and to keep speaking up. So Carissa, I want to hear a little bit more about you and what you do. So as I mentioned in your bio, you're an entrepreneur, you're a climate activist, you actually attended COP27 in Egypt. So you've been representing the territory really all over the place. Tell us a little bit more about your work. I am also actually sitting on the um, Assembly of First Nations National Women's Council, representing the Yukon region, all Yukon First Nations women and girls. And I'm also a part of the alumni for the Yukon First Nations Climate Action Fellowship. We've been working very hard for the past three years, and I was actually just in Montreal with a couple of them, and we sat on a couple panels and talked about our, our document. For the first two years, we worked really hard on our document. We were endorsed by the chiefs in the Yukon to come up with this um, action plan. There's 13 of us First Nations youth from across the Yukon that got together, and we looked at climate change from the First Nations lens. You know, a lot of that was realizing that disconnection is the cause of climate change. That can look different for everyone, and reconnecting can also look different for everyone, you know, like reconnect to mind, body, self culture. Lots of the fellows are relearning their language. And we've just been on this absolutely incredible journey. And we've got our document out. We've got our, our website out, uh, reconnection.vision, for those who want to check it out. And when you say you were just in Montreal, you really were just in Montreal. So they, like just, just there. So thank you so much for managing to fit us into your busy schedule. We super, super appreciate it. Now, Tosh, as I mentioned in your introduction, you've had a storied career, done lots and lots of different things. How do you sort of describe your career journey and the work that you've done? Yeah, I've been really honored to be able to work in advancing Indigenous self-determination for most of my career. I started out in my education wanting to be a clinical psychologist, and the intention behind that choice was 
I couldn't wrap my head around how half of my community could pull themselves out of the trauma, could pull themselves out of the addiction, and the other half couldn't. So did my undergrad in that and very quickly learned that I was a really bad clinical psychologist. <laughs> to the point where my supervisor was like, new career. Because <laughs> um, I, I just am too blunt, right, <laughs> on the, those pieces and maybe <laughs> lacking some empathy on some of that part, especially when I was younger. So I, I came home right when my First Nation was ratifying our self-government agreement. So I you know, had grown up under an Indian Act band, knew what a band office was, knew what those programs were, and we were about to take a huge leap. And I just, that became all-consuming for me. It was so interesting to see the potential and the opportunities that were opened up. So I spent the rest of my career trying to take advantage of those opportunities, trying to advance things like reconciliation, indigenization, and decolonization. I find myself really lucky to work in a, a team. We run IRP Consulting, a small Indigenous consulting firm, and we pick projects that are the hard ones. We want to move mountains. We want to do that together. We want to inspire people to advance their reconciliation. We want to tell people what indigenization is, what it looks like, how to do it in a good way. We're not interested in the boring projects. We want the complex ones. Uh, I love being in difficult conversations and creating safe spaces so that we can move these, these big things together. So I'm so glad that you brought up the sort of coming back and it being the time of self-governance agreements being established in your nation. Because sort of one thing that's interesting about the Yukon Territory compared to other jurisdictions in Canada is the extent to which self-governance agreements have been implemented when it comes to Indigenous nations here. So out of the 14 First Nations in the territory, 11 of them have established self-governance agreements. And then I believe the other three are currently in negotiation to establish those agreements. Another thing that's sort of interesting, and again, this is something that perhaps is more for the benefit of listeners outside the territory as opposed to those of you in the room, is how young the actual territorial government in the Yukon is compared to what people might expect. I think a lot of the time, if you even know the dates of when provinces and territories entered confederation, which like is already asking a lot of a lot of people, you see kind of 1898 and you're like, oh, okay, so it's been a territorial government really since then, which is not really the case, right? 1898 is kind of the date of the gold rush and that was when there was sort of a resource-based need to govern the territory on its own. But up until 1979, the Yukon was administered by a commissioner that was a federal government appointee, so someone who came kind of out of Ottawa as opposed to someone elected. And then it wasn't actually until 2003, so like within my lifetime, which tells you how not long ago it was, where the Yukon government's power became sort of more formalized. And so a lot of the ways in which this territory is governed are super recent. And I imagine that, you know, for a lot of people in the room, that means that some of these shifts have come within living memory. You've been involved in them in different ways. And that plays a role in determining sort of how the relationships have developed between the different levels of government. So I guess, Tosh, you know, you were talking about having been involved and sort of coming into your career around the time that your nation was establishing its self-governance agreement. Uh, can you give us like a brief rundown of the history and the journey that it took for Indigenous self-governance to be formalized here? There are a number of things that we often say make the Yukon very unique, and, and one of them is that history of colonization. It's not two, three hundred years like it is in some parts uh, of this country and, and other countries in the world. So we had a, you know, a history where contact was much later than other parts of the, the country. We don't have historic numbered treaties like other parts of the country. Uh, and I think when we talk about land claims in the Yukon, it, it came about when all of the First Nations were really united to say, we don't like what's happening in the territory. We're not okay with not having a say in all of these pieces. And you have to picture a time in the Yukon where major decisions are being made in the benefit of Canada, but not where First Nations have any say in them. So huge mines are being opened up in traditional territories without any say. Major projects are, are being created. And First Nations have no, not only no control over their own lives, they're not able to practice being self-determining because of things like the Indian Act. They have no say over the land and the resources and, and what's happening in the territory. So just one of the big catalysts for, for land claims today uh, was 1969 with the uh, white paper. Let's just call it what it was, an epic disaster, uh, you know, for the federal government. One of the things that the white paper did do is really rally Indigenous groups across Canada to say, you know, we're not okay with that. We're never, ever ever going to be okay with not being Indigenous. And so here in the North, our, you know, we, our leaders of the time and our knowledge holders and elders united, and they produced a document called Together Today for Our Children Tomorrow and presented that to Pierre uh, Trudeau Sr. And that was a really big turning point in the, the North because I think that government was reeling from the white paper, was looking for solutions on how to advance this tumultuous relationship 
And Yukon First Nation leaders gave them that option, that map forward. And if you haven't read it, I encourage every Canadian to read it together today for our children tomorrow. You can find it online. It's an incredible resource. It's a visionary document that lays out how First Nations in the Yukon can reclaim their Indigenous self-determination. But most importantly, it's about all Yukoners. I never grew up talking about kicking all the white people out. We talked about all of us living here being good Yukoners to each other and having a say over what happened in the territory. And that's what Together Today for Our Children Tomorrow does, is it outlines this vision for all of our children to have the best that they can have. So then you fast forward, because I, I think we were probably a little eager in the Yukon, thought, you know, two years negotiation <laughs> would be good. <laughs> 16 years later, <laughs> you know, uh, we have a couple of agreements in principle. And we get to a point where there's an umbrella final agreement that has been ratified. And each community then takes that framework and makes it their own unique place. And so in the Yukon, we did land claims and self-government at the same time. And so we've been practicing this reclamation of Indigenous self-determination in the territory for 30 plus years. And, and I, I think that's because, to your point, not everybody always pays attention to what happens in the Yukon, right? And so we've been left alone to sort of navigate this piece. And what's come out of it, I think, is a model that can be replicated in other parts of Canada. And I just want to say there's a distinction, I think, in self-government when you talk about uh, Indigenous people. We've always been self-determining. So the 11 that have signed self-government agreements up here have, have chosen that tool. The three that, that you mentioned earlier, they're negotiating their own way. It may not be under the umbrella filing agreement, but we acknowledge that they're Indigenous self-determining peoples either way. Yeah, no, that was exactly kind of going to be my next question that I imagine, you know, each of the nations here has their own sort of traditions, would have had different modes of governing themselves before colonization. And so I guess my follow-up question was going to be if there's any sort of specific differences between nations that you can speak to in terms of like how they've pursued self-government, whether there's differences in the agreements that have been made with the federal government, that kind of answers that question, like if that if that's also fine. But yeah, that was going to be my follow-up because I know it's very easy sometimes to just assume like, okay, all self-government agreements are going to be the same. And that's not the case. No, for sure. They're all different. And I, you know, we do have things that bind us together and unite us. All 14 first nations here are matriarchal, you know, women play a big role in leadership, uh, in this territory. Uh, we have similar worldviews, but the way we govern is different, not just amongst our nations, amongst our families, amongst our clans. And so that diversity is, is a strength, not just in the Yukon, but across Canada with indigenous people. And I think all 14 Yukon First Nations, we have our own ways and our own customs. And, and the challenge with, with self-government and land claims is to take these Western constructs and put your First Nation ways into them. And so that means that the same law that we're allowed to apply, and I'll, I'll just pick on, you know, home care. Home care is going to look different in every one of those 14 communities, as it should. So I want to open this up now to our other panelists. Uh, that was a really fantastic sort of background, Tosh. Thank you so much. I guess we can jump to sort of more conventional parts of the political system. So looking at sort of city governance, something that people who aren't familiar with sort of how Indigenous self-governance works might be more familiar with. So Michelle, you're engaged in the sort of municipal aspect of the political system. What has your experience been like navigating that system of governance, especially as somebody who's been a bit of a trailblazer in that field? Okay, I'm also just going to start off by saying I'm very nervous. <laughs> That's part of this. <laughs> part of that representation piece for me is also being honest. And so, like, I wore my, my fearless t-shirt today. Um, and when I'm wearing this t-shirt, you know that's when I'm actually really afraid. Um, <laughs> because... It's also a reminder to myself that sometimes being fearless is being afraid and doing it anyway. So <laughs> it's been 30 years since we've had Indigenous representation on Whitehorse City Council. And so the last time that an Indigenous person was elected was in 1991, which also happens to be the year that I was born. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I actually didn't even realize when I had put my name forward that that was the case. And somebody had just mentioned to me, you know, I think you're not the first, but I think it's been a really long time since we've had this perspective at the table. And so I feel very honored that people trusted me. It does have its challenges and I feel a lot of pressure. Um, you know, I want to make sure I get it right. And I want to make sure that the work that I'm doing is creating safe spaces for the next person, because I don't want it to be another 30 years. I don't want to be the last Indigenous woman. And something that really keeps me going, though, when it does feel exhausting and it does feel hard is... That, you know, if I wasn't there, 
what would this conversation look like? What questions wouldn't be getting asked? And I know that by being there, I have asked questions that have never been asked before. And a perfect example of that just happened recently. You know, the city is on to traditional territories. It's on the Kwanlun Dun First Nation and my family's First Nation, the Tongkwachan Council. And when you walk into chambers, there are flags behind all of our seats. And there's the city of Whitehorse flag, the territory's flag, and the flag of Canada. And I said one day, why don't we have the flags of the First Nations here? The response I got was, well, no one's ever asked that before. <laughs> and so on June 20th this year, just ahead of Indigenous Peoples Day, we permanently placed the flags of Kwanlun Dun and Ta'an Kwachan in chambers and in front of City Hall. <laughs> um, and it, in addition to that, we also engaged with First Nation elders and language revitalizers. And we translated the name of, of City Hall into the Southern Shoshone language. So how has growing up in the Yukon sort of with the framework of self-governance already in place, I think, for most of your life, or that was something that was being discussed as you were kind of growing up, figuring out how you wanted to, I guess, build a career, figuring out what your sort of relationship to like to your communities was like, how did that shape your perspective on political structures and shape the work that you do now? I didn't really grow up in politics. So I didn't really become aware of it until probably just after graduating high school. I grew up Taku River Clinket First Nation from Atlin, BC, and uh, they are not self-governed yet. A few years ago, I switched over to Kwanlun Dun because my dad has uh, close family ties to Kwanlun Dun, and I was just more more involved with this community. And I didn't even really start noticing differences that we were so different until I started traveling and I started attending AFN conferences and being able to be around all these different First Nations people from across Canada. There have been some differences and their customs down there, down south, are very different. You know, like talking to someone and they point out, you know, that women can't touch drums in a certain part of Canada. But like up here, it's like we're... All the women were all in it. We're, we're amazing. <laughs> Not to like diss the rest of Canada, but. <laughs> you know what Krista said about you don't really know and appreciate what you've got at home until you travel. It shocks me every time I go down south on the difference in the expectation here. You don't have a law, a single law passed in this territory that doesn't go through all 14 First Nations. That is normalized. And so when I'm working with clients in the South and, and they're like, why would we talk to First Nations about this? I, I very clearly <laughs> see the differences there, right? And I think the policy areas that you'll see that in the most, I mean, we're, we're at the forefront of restructuring child welfare. We're at the forefront of talking about how healthcare is going to look different. And we're talking about building entire systems collaboratively. And I think that's really hard for people to wrap their head around unless they're, they're living that piece. But I think what we can teach the rest of Canada and, and other parts of the world is that it, A, is possible. It's really hard, but it is so worthwhile. Because if you look at the economic opportunities for the Indigenous people in this territory, you can map out when we signed and where we are now. And anytime you can give Indigenous communities, nations, back their Indigenous rights to be self-determining, things will improve dramatically. I will ask if either of you have anything you want to add, but otherwise I'm happy. <laughs> I didn't, just the shaking of the head. No, um, Tosh sums this up so yeah. perfectly. Honestly. I know, it's a lot of And pressure. when she yeah. says that she likes to have those hard conversations, honestly, if you've ever seen Tosh and her team tackle those conversations, it is magic. <laughs> Every time I leave a room that I've shared with Tosh, I feel more powerful. Aww. She's making me blush. You can't see that on the podcast, but it's there a good visual description for people that are getting the audio only format. So yeah, I, I want to talk about then sort of the specific policy areas where self-governance has had an impact. Talk a little bit about what the opportunities and challenges are here in the Yukon. 
I want to talk firstly a little bit about education. So recently, in I believe 2022, the First Nations School Board, which was the first of its kind in Canada, began its inaugural year here in the Yukon. So Tosh, how did that come to be and how have things been going so far over that first year? Yeah, I think that came to be out of the same process that most of the land claims and self-government agreements came out of. It was about reclaiming jurisdiction over an area that has huge impact on our, our kids. There are lots of different models of Indigenous jurisdiction education. So BC's got First Nation-run schools. There are band-operated schools across the country. For the Yukon, because we don't have that same reservation system, it made sense to do something in, in between. And so the First Nation School Board exists under the territorial school system. So it's not autonomous in the same way that some First Nation schools are. And I think is really, for a number of people, the first step into what we will eventually see, which is First Nations create their own education acts. Um, and run their own schools that way. How's it going? In my personal opinion, they are moving freaking mountains. I <laughs> am really lucky to be able to work in education in, in lots of different ways. And I'll tell you, there's something incredible about walking into a First Nations school and seeing kids feel like they belong for the first time. Because we know when our kids belong, they're going to do better in every aspect of their life. So when you see, you know, eight, ten generations of First Nation kids who have never felt that they belong in any education system, and in two years, you can shift that. That's pretty freaking cool. Yeah. So I guess just to kind of provide for people that don't have context of what would be so different, of course, I suppose it's being among community in a school for one thing. But is there also elements, I would imagine, of sort of the curriculum being tailored to the student body in a more specific way? Like what's creating that sense of belonging, in your opinion? So I think it's everything. I, I call it the airport test, right? And I'm going to pick on Montreal for a whole bunch of reasons. But when you're flying out of Montreal Airport, do you know whose traditional territory you're in? Do you know that you're in a traditional territory? No. But when you're flying out of Vancouver, man, my shoulders go back. I'm like, yep. You know you're in somebody's traditional territory in that airport. Same thing with First Nation schools. You walk in, you see things that resemble you. You can see signs of clans. You can see your elders recognized as knowledge holders, paid at the same level as teachers, you can see assessments done different ways. You can see learning that's land-based out on the land. You can see collective worldviews where your job is no longer just to teach what's important for this child, but encourage that child to be the best that they can be so they strengthen their entire nation. So from every part of the physical space to the policies that are applied to the curriculum, everything there has Indigenous worldviews. And that's how kids know that they're important and that they not only belong in that space, but they should be there. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. 
I want to talk about housing a little bit. So I know housing has been a big issue here, as it has been in so many parts of the country. There's a real housing crisis in Whitehorse specifically uh, because the population's been growing. Things are not being built at the rate that they need to be. And the rate of homelessness in the city has gone up, I believe, 30% in the past two years. So, Michelle, I imagine that you probably work with this issue quite closely in your role as a counselor. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what's been causing this upward trend and what maybe some of the unique factors are here in Whitehorse? First of all, like the cost of living and groceries and gas and childcare and our wages and and things like that. Like I I think that the effects of all of those costs rising um, are really felt by a lot of people these days and especially thinking of our elders and our seniors who are on fixed incomes. The Yukon Anti-Poverty Coalition and Safe at Home actually recently put out um, their point in time report. And so it's basically a snapshot of how many and, and how or why people in our community are experiencing houselessness. I believe the date that they chose this year was April 18th. And so on that night, almost 200 people experienced houselessness in our community and 26 of them were children. 90% of people who responded to that survey were Indigenous. And that was the highest percentage of Indigenous respondents that they've ever recorded. And so some of the reasons that people pointed to was things like low wages, struggling with addiction, not having access to harm reduction, but a lot of them were because of evictions. And something that I think is really contributing to this crisis in our community is short-term rentals. And I don't really feel that it's a coincidence that the amount of people that are experiencing houselessness almost matches one for one the amount of short-term rentals that we have in our community. That also isn't regulated. And so that is something that we are talking about on council and through some of our work there, like our official community plan is going to kind of guide the work that the city will do over the next 20 years. And one of our action items in there is to do a study on the impacts of of short-term rentals. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to that study. I think another thing that's really played a role in this crisis is for people who are already experiencing houselessness, we really have been feeling the effects of climate change in our community this year. And so we experienced flooding and we also experienced landslides on our clay cliffs. And these are two spaces where people were seeking shelter and those spaces aren't safe anymore. It's like really shocking to see how many of these like different crises, it's like, oh, this is happening everywhere because the short-term rental issues, it's not just a problem in big cities, also a problem in smaller centers. And I know that sort of repurposing disused or underutilized federal government buildings has also been a conversation in larger cities. So hopefully we can see some movement on that really across the country. So Carissa, you know, as Michelle sort of introduced, climate change is something that I imagine must be on everyone's mind here because you can see the impact so obviously, I imagine, with things like what she was describing. You know, how have you seen the effects of climate change begin to change the land? And what are some of the initiatives that you've taken part in? Anything more that you're able to share, I would love to hear. A big difference in my life has been the lowering numbers of salmon. We can't set up our, our fish nets. It's like it's it's been such a long time since my family has been able to set up our fish net. And because of that, we're we're not going out to camp. We're not spending that time with family that we used to. We're not teaching those traditions. So like along with everything, like the lowering salmon numbers, caribou numbers, it's also a loss of our traditions. That's what we've been working with, with the Climate Action Fellowship. We really want to be able to bring culture back in our daily lives and education and everything. With the numbers getting so low, we're realizing that we haven't been honoring our salmon properly. We used to do ceremonies when the salmon would first go through. And not only that, it's also the water is getting warmer. It is hard to work with the the transboundary, you know, working with Alaska because there is overfishing going on over there, but they don't believe that. And, you know, like Michelle mentioned, there there's the floods going on. There's the landslides going on. There's fires. This year, we didn't see much rain and there's like no berries out. Like I went hunting last week with my dad and my sister. Yeah, there's like no 
no berries and even hunting, we we weren't successful. I was at a dinner the other night and this this guy came up to us and he started talking to us about going hunting. He hired an outfitter to take him and we asked him where he's going. No idea where he's going. Who he's going with? No idea who he's going with. What he's hunting? No idea what he's hunting. I just remember being so frustrated sitting there and my family, we we struggled to be able to go out on the land to hunt. We're not going out there for a trophy hunt. We're going out there to feed our families. We haven't gotten a moose in a long time. Yeah, very frustrating to hear. And then he started talking about salmon because me and my friends, they they work in salmon conservation. And yeah, this guy was like, well, why do you, why are you working in salmon conservation? Why are you, what's going on? We're like, well, the salmon are basically extinct here. There's, there's almost no salmon. And he's like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And then he pulls out his phone and he's got six salmon on his boat with his son that he was so happy to show us. <sighs> like stuff like that is so frustrating. People come up here and they think that they can hunt, take our traditional meats and traditions. And there's no remorse to it. Anyways, that was my rant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think it's it's important to hear like people say, sort of express emotions like that. Because I think that one thing that people who are concerned about climate and who engage in, say, climate activism or environmental activism, but aren't directly personally implicated by it yet, like it's not yet affecting their livelihood, their ability to feed their family, their ability to practice their culture, it's not like as existential, right? And so this is where I think sometimes the sort of like climate anxiety, like people who just think too much about things kind of starts to creep in. And I think when I heard you kind of talking, just describing how frustrating it is it also really like gets across though a sense of urgency of just how important this is and why like I think you and so many other people are involved in the projects that you're involved in and do the work that you do because it's not just like an abstract policy issue. It's very tied to your family. So thank you so much for for sharing that. One thing I want to touch on, and I, I think Michelle as well, when we were discussing housing, you did touch on this already, the overdose crisis, uh, addiction issues in the territory. One stat that I was sort of surprised by was that the Yukon is actually, I think, at the top of just jurisdictions, provinces, and territories in terms of per capita drug-related deaths, which is pretty jarring. So the territory, as well as some of the First Nations, have declared states of emergency. So what are the various levels of government here doing, and what are maybe some opportunities that they have to do better to address this? This is something that really has deeply affected all of our communities and the territory as a whole. And so um, we did experience a devastating amount of loss and continue to. That was an appropriate response was to declare a, a health emergency. And I think some good things have, have happened because of that declaration. And within the city, you know, we made sure all our staff were trained on naloxone. And there's a poster on the door, same as there is on the theater, actually, the Knock for Naloxone campaign. So people know they can come to, to City Hall if they're or someone that they're with or is experiencing an overdose and that, that the staff there can help them and that there's going to be supplies there that can help them. And, you know, it has entered a lot more of our conversations, but it's been 18 months since we declared the health emergency. And I personally don't really feel like that's the way that we're acting. It, I, I feel very frustrated by these things because it's like it's this loss that we're experiencing was not an opportunity for a photo op. And it wasn't an opportunity to throw yourselves like a nice ceremony <laughs> and pat yourself on the back and get the news media and all the accolades. And and if, if we are going to do those things, then we need to do the actions that come with them. On my level of trying to bring th these these action items into the work that, that we do is, well, whose jurisdiction is it? Or like, whose responsibility is that? And I just think, you know, we all acknowledge that we all have a role to play. And so like, let's just figure it out because people are dying and it's disproportionately affecting uh, our Indigenous women. And, you know, we're also a signatory to the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls strategy. And so we committed to protecting Indigenous women. And here's a way that we can do that. I, I call it something different. I call it a toxic drug supply. You know, it, it, across the territory, across the country, across North America, we're dealing with toxic drugs. And I I totally agree with Michelle. We've, we've called it emergency. But we also called an emergency when the Southern Lakes were flooding. The freaking army showed up. 
I haven't seen an army for the people that are dying from the toxic drug supply. I've seen a government, all levels of government, municipal, First Nation, territorial, federal struggle with how to approach this. Governments by their nature are risk adverse. They're not centers of innovation, right? Like, <laughs> they're governments. They run off of electoral cycles. So in my mind, across the board, they need to be giving funding to the innovators, the ones who can come up and think outside of the box and try new things. Are you ever going to see a premier step up and say, you know what, let's try microdosing with mushrooms? No, <laughs> right? It's not going to happen. But there's some really strong research that says, actually, that has a shot at it, right? And so, okay, premiers, you don't want to, you know, bring out shrooms and fine, I get that. <laughs> Give some money to an organization who can try that. Let's get out of this, you know, the government's not going to be the answer for this issue. No level of government's going to be the answer for this issue. And then I, you know, I want, I don't think we can talk about the toxic drug supply in the Yukon without talking about the history of colonization. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, you know what, I think I want to be a crackhead. It doesn't happen, right? It's because of the traumas. It's because of the history of colonization that we're dealing with. And until we talk about those root causes in the communities, we're not going to address this long term. And I, you know, I think of my own community, Burwash Landing, no RCMP. I've personally called the RCMP to say a family member has been beaten up badly. And they've told me we'll be there in probably four to six days. And you're, you're talking about drug dealers that are coming and squatting in houses. Like there is just no way to tackle that type of history on your own. Even as a self-governing First Nation, we need resources, we need help, we need commitments, and we definitely need to be thinking outside the box. Again, it's like, I don't know, disheartening to hear that the challenges are so similar, again, in such different places. But yeah, I think innovative policy solutions really are what's needed. And uh, I don't know, in Oregon, they decriminalized mushrooms. So like, it's possible. <laughs> Go Oregon. One thing I wanted to talk about was sort of what you all see as sources of growth and potential for the city of Whitehorse and also for the territory as a whole. I know that there's a lot of entrepreneurship in the city, that the Yukon has one of the highest populations of artists per capita as well among any province or territory in Canada. So what are the parts of the city, the economy, the territory that you all are excited to see sort of grow and evolve? I, I know you mentioned the art scene, but I want to like emphasize that. And... I'd love to see more Indigenous-owned businesses. You know, I, I know of a few youth who have, like, big dreams, big visions for businesses, and we need to find a way to nurture that and, and help our youth. I hate being bored, so I, I'm always like, what's coming new? Language revitalization. I am so freaking excited about the number of young First Nation people that are learning their language, about the First Nations who've taken serious steps forward to acknowledge the importance of that work. And so we have a number of First Nations who are paying their students to learn their language. Uh, we have new programs that we've never seen before. So that piece, I think, is super exciting. Really excited about the future of telecoms in the North. Uh, we have a First Nation who is looking at creating their own First Nation internet service provider for the first time in the North. We've, we've dealt with a monopoly here. Yukoners will know who I'm talking about. <laughs> that company that shall not be named. Um, the rest of Canada, they're a subsidiary bell. Um, <laughs> And so we, I personally really tie Indigenous self-determination to the ability to have fast, reliable internet. You know, that's going to be a game changer. And so the, the telecoms uh, future is changing the, the territory. We're having conversations in the territory about First Nation ownership of energy. And that's pretty freaking cool. Uh, so I'm excited to see where that one goes. And then lastly, I just think the, uh, the first time, at least in my career, I'm starting to see systems change. We're really good at programs and initiatives in the North. Ottawa's great at programs and initiatives. But we don't do a great job of shifting entire systems. And I see a whole bunch of systems that are right on the brink of big changes, including healthcare, child welfare, education. And I think that's not, that's not only good for, for UConn First Nations, but we talked about the First Nations School Board. That's for all UConn students. And I, you know, all of our kids do better when they learn on the land. All of our, our citizens in the UConn will do better if we have better healthcare. So these systems changes are pretty exciting in my, my view. So I have a couple of sort of wrap-up questions, maybe quick hits that I can get just thoughts from all three of you on each of these questions. So my first question, I guess keeping in mind that the audio recording in theory of this is going to be disseminated to our listeners, many of whom probably have beliefs that are incorrect about the territories. Like being from just a smaller province, I notice all the time people think wrong things about Nova Scotia, like constantly. And so I imagine that, especially those of you that do work in the South, uh, you've probably had instances where 
people have just said stuff and you're like, who even told you that? Like, that's so not correct. Maybe if each of you have a common misconception of either just about the Yukon or what happens in the Yukon politically that you want to debunk for our listeners. We don't live in igloos. I've been asked that plenty of times. Seriously. We also have a McDonald's here. I've also been asked that a few times. (laughs) The biggest one I want to debunk is that we don't have Northern solutions to Northern problems. We do not need it. We don't need Southerners to come up and fix us. We're not broken. Uh, What we need is for them to enable our solutions. And so I really, you know, every time I get a chance, I'm like, Ottawa, stop sending people up here. <laughs> we, we can do it on our own. Send money. Yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, a common misconception is that because we're smaller here, that we are somehow less effective, like politically or as governments. And so I think... Actually, I was thinking back to when I ran territorially and there was this meme running around of like that big barge that got stuck. (laughs) And then there was this little like tractor trying to dig it out. Um, And so (laughs) basically like the barge they put as like, this is the NDP's platform. And then the little tractor was like the budget. And, And like, they were just trying to say like that these ideas that we had that we were running on were like impossible. So what do you all see as the most significant challenges and opportunities in this process of reconciliation in the territory? Uh, I think the top three biggest challenges for reconciliation, my, my first one is we don't do a great job of creating safe spaces for people to have tough conversations. And I think in the Yukon, we've done about as much as we can on the low-hanging fruit of reconciliation. And now we're getting to the tough stuff. Hunting rights, fishing rights, land, housing. And we're not going to be able to do that in a good way and make progress unless we make space for difficult conversations and and have enough empathy for each other. And I use empathy because I think it's the the skill set that we need for every major conversation in this this global society of ours. It doesn't mean that I agree with you, but it means I can understand where you're coming from. And when you're talking about different worldviews at play, empathy is is key. So that's my second biggest challenge is we need to be practicing and learning empathy more. That's going to be the answer to climate change. It's going to be the answer to the, the issues that we see with the, the divisions politically in the country, all of those pieces. And I don't think we talk about empathy enough, and I don't think we practice that skill enough. And then my last biggest challenge, I think, is these new narratives that are popping up. And here's the time for my rant. Man, I am so freaking pissed off about this narrative about why haven't you dug up any bodies at residential school? To the point where I'm spending, you know, I, I was recently sick, so I, was, I had a lot of bedtime, man. And I'm like right into the, <laughs> the comments on different things. And, and, I, and I think what I've come to the conclusion on, and, and one of the challenges to reconciliation is people aren't doing their own legwork. Like the TRC produced a huge document with a bunch of calls to action and the vast majority of Canadians aren't talking about it. The vast majority of Canadians have never read the Indian Act. That's okay. It's really boring. I get it. <laughs> but if you're going to have an opinion on something, then you got to do the legwork and at least understand that. And so, I, you know, I had this conversation with several gentlemen yesterday who are really, they're like, okay, well, just show us proof that there's bodies there, that the church and the government did that. And so I, I do what I do and I, I bring them to me, what I would say is evidence, right? Here's, here's some survivor stories. Here is work for, of archaeologists and, and ground surveys who have said these are disruptions. And here's the reports from the church on the children that died. And here's the reports from the TRC of the children didn't. Well, that's not actual proof. <laughs> okay, well then tell me what is your proof, right? And so then we get down to the, the, the nitty gritty, which is why can't you just dig them up? And so my response back is, okay, do you have any idea how complex that is? And they hadn't thought about it, right? They're just like, well, go call the RCMP. Just go call the RCMP. They'll do your research and then they'll dig it up. I'm like, you need anthropologists. You have to figure out DNA samples. You have to get consensus from the community, which we don't have right now in many of our Indigenous communities on how to handle that. Money? There's no <laughs> unlimited source of funding to hire all these people to dig all of these pieces up. And I could see their eyes sort of switch and they're like, oh, oh yeah, we hadn't really thought about those pieces because it was easier for them to jump on no, this didn't actually happen, there's no proof, all the politicians are lying, then to actually sit back and consider that all the evidence that's been in front of them for the last 20 years already says this has happened, right? And so that, I think that's my third one for the challenge to reconciliation is these tough narratives that are coming out because people are not actually doing the hard work of learning. And on that note, I'm going to call it... Thank you again so much. Uh, it has been a real treat to visit Whitehorse. Yeah, we've had a fantastic time. Thank you all. Yeah.
All right, let's adjourn. That's been The Backbench. We'll talk again in two weeks when I will be getting ready to bump Peace on Earth slash Little Drummer Boy by Bing Crosby and David Bowie. Uh, I don't know where the year has gone, but that's where we're going. If you've been following along with what happens in Ottawa, let us know what you've been watching closely, what you'd like to hear us discuss, and what esoteric Canadian politics content you want us to break down. Send us your questions, your concerns, and your rants. You can email us at backbench at candleland.com, and we're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Matea Roach, and you can find me on Twitter at Matea Roach. The Carcross Desert is a series of sand dunes located in the southern part of the Yukon. The desert was formed during the last glacial period, which is what we know as the last ice age, when large glacial lakes formed and deposited silt. This episode was produced by Aviva Lassard and Noor Azria with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. A huge shout out to the Yukon Theatre for hosting us and for making sure all of our listeners could hear the important conversation we had. Thank you so much specifically to Evan from the Yukon Film Society. We couldn't have done this without you. Thank you again to our panelists, Carissa Waugh, Michelle Friesen, and Tosh Southwick. If you value this podcast, support us. You'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on merch, tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis by keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. We also have some bonus content this week for supporters. We're releasing an extended cut of this episode so that you can get the full live event experience. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for listening. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.